aspiration, respiratory rest, and COVID. Today's episode is pneumonias. Welcome back to Sick Enough. So thanks for tuning back into Sick Enough. I'm Tyler. And I'm Dave. In today's episode, we're going to talk about pneumonias. Everybody hears about pneumonias. Everybody knows it's it's kind of a popular problem, but we're going to go into a little bit more on what they actually are. Plain and simple, what is a pneumonia? Straightforward as that can be, it's just an infection of the lungs. That's it. Sometimes this infection can be a bacteria, for example, strep, staph, MRSA, Klebsiella. Sometimes it can be a viral infection, like rhinovirus, influenza, of course, COVID, or rarely even a fungal infection. Although if someone's got a fungal infection, fungal infections are not common, and the kind of patient who has a fungal pneumonia, their pneumonia is probably not their biggest issue. Sometimes we hear... I think some people think pneumonia is inflammation of the lungs. That's technically called pneumonitis. That's not really a pneumonia. There's no infection. There's nothing, there's no bacteria or microbes involved with that. Just kind of to split hairs here. In a show called Sick Enough, in which we're aiming to talk about life inside hospitals, pneumonias must certainly be addressed. It is worth noting, however, that the range of acuity that comes from pneumonias is quite large. I have seen pneumonias that can be sent home from a clinic with a prescription for seven days of antibiotics to be picked up from the pharmacy on the way home. I have seen pneumonias requiring two to three day long hospitalizations. I have seen pneumonias requiring three weeks on a breathing machine. And I have, of course, seen people die from pneumonias. Any of the above are possible. So, Tyler, how do you usually judge kind of how severe a pneumonia is? How is this? How do you work this process up? Yeah, the diagnosis of pneumonia can be a challenge because there's actually a lot of factors that go into it. The presence or absence of these factors, in addition to making the diagnosis itself, is actually kind of somewhat murky in that it's kind of challenging to make the diagnosis. It also is somewhat challenging to predict how severe it is. I realize that on TV shows and movies, the diagnosis of a pneumonia looks pretty simple. The medical staff orders an x-ray. They take that black and gray printout, hang it next to the glowing light, and boom, there it is. The pneumonia right there in the x-ray. It's almost like the word pneumonia itself appears on the film, making it as obvious as can be. <laughs> I can assure you in real life, diagnosing pneumonia is not that straightforward. And in fact, there's a little bit of finesse that goes into it. Dare I even say, oftentimes there's a good bit of guesswork involved as well. In the situation in which we're kind of guessing, the decision of whether or not to give treatments such as antibiotics, antivirals, steroids, or antifungals, it's not so much as driven by, do we think this is a pneumonia, but rather, are the side effects of treatment weighing heavily against the probability they have it? I got to say, there are so many times I've looked at x-rays and I've gone, God, is that little haze there? Could that be a pneumonia? Am I overcalling this? You know, what, what if I don't treat this? Because we have x-rays and CT scans, doesn't that make it a little bit easier? It, it can. Uh, this is a good place to start with the diagnosis of a pneumonia. Of course, imaging. An x-ray or CT scan can certainly suggest a pneumonia, but it cannot by itself diagnose a pneumonia. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a common misconception among a lot of people. And I don't just mean our listeners. I mean, a lot of nurses and doctors kind of mm -hmm. gets lost. I say that because if you've looked at as many x-rays and CAT scans as I have in my career, and I'm not even a pulmonologist, you'll see that a lot of these images, they're kind of hard to tell apart. Yeah, we can oftentimes have images which are slam dunk normal. And conversely, we often have images which are slam dunk abnormal. But I'd say at least half the time, that's not the case. More often, the image in front of us just has some areas of patchy, hazy consolidation, which could be a pneumonia, or it could be that inflammatory pneumonitis, or it could just be some fluid, or hell, it could just be how this patient's lungs look on an x-ray. We definitely do need to do some more digging before we hang our diagnosis based on a hazy, nonspecific image. 
In addition to imaging, when someone comes in with shortness of breath and we think they might have a pneumonia and we're working them up, we order some blood work. This expected standard of care for 90% of all ER visits include a CBC, which is a complete blood count, and then some electrolytes and some chemistries, which can be referred to as a, a BMP, a CMP, a Chem 7, just depending on your vernacular. They're, they're all the same thing. They just have a different name. If we're talking about the diagnosis of a pneumonia, the CBC might show an elevation of the white blood cells, which can indicate an acute infection of some kind. If the white blood cells are normal, that's a clue that perhaps there's maybe not a pneumonia in front of us. But other than white blood cells, there's not a whole lot else on blood work that can actually point towards a pneumonia. In fact, the normal blood work otherwise can kind of suggest it is a pneumonia. Because pneumonias tend to not to have a major, major impact on chemistries and electrolytes. So if we see a normal chemistry panel, that can kind of actually suggest a pneumonia is going on more in like the diagnosis of exclusion kind of thing. I hope that makes sense. If the patient does have notable abnormalities on their sodium or bicarb or creatinine, that could suggest this is more from heart failure or from COPD and or, less likely a pneumonia. Yeah, or volume overload because yeah. they're not eliminating all that fluid. Or kidney issues, which will yeah. be our next episode. Other lab tests include cultures. However, cultures take time, and by time I mean several days to grow. So they certainly can't help us give us the Fast and furious answer, yes, no, is this an emergency? Is this an ammonia down here in the emergency room? They can guide therapy if three days later the cultures are positive, but when we're down in the ER looking for a yes or no, the cultures don't help us. Yeah, and I hate to say it, I rarely find that sputum cultures really help. They help if someone's got like a tracheostomy and we can directly shut suction stuff out of there. But so often when people cough stuff up, the bacteria in their mouth gets on the, the sputum sample and that oftentimes makes the cultures a little bit, I mean, not, not really helpful. I'm so. actually glad you mentioned that. Cause I, I, that's, that's a good point too. Um, blood cultures sometimes can help us with yeah. pneumonia, but again, that's several days later. Yeah. Sputum cultures are horribly unreliable. I know everybody thinks if they cough into that cup, just run that goo under a microscope, but that goo can have something it's or nothing. Got and it's just junk from your mouth in it. So there is a procedure called a bronchoscopy. And that's when a lung specialist sticks a camera down in your lungs and takes a sample that's significantly more reliable. Now that is of course still not perfect. And that has its own drawbacks. Mm -hmm. But if I see a sputum sample collected from a, an awake person coughing, not nearly as reliable as a sputum sample collected from someone who had that mm -hmm. bronchoscopy procedure. Moving on me personally, if I were going to give extra weight or gravity to any area of the pneumonia workup that really helps diagnose, I think their vital signs are a very strong indicator. The five major vital signs across all diagnoses, not just pneumonias, include blood pressure, heart rate, respiratory rate, temperature, like fever, and oxygen saturation. Pneumonias, if present, can arguably have an impact on any of these five, and as such, this is a very useful way of triangulating our diagnosis. Fevers and low oxygen levels, referred to as hypoxia, hypoxia is the medical term for low oxygen levels, these are very suggestive, I feel, and can at times practically diagnose a pneumonia by itself. In fact, if I have a patient in front of me and all I know about them is they have fevers and hypoxia, pneumonia is already very mm -hmm. high in my differential, and that's without any x-ray and without any blood work. Yeah, these days, COVID too. I mean, but, you know, that's what we're seeing, though, is COVID pneumonias. Exactly. The respiratory rate can also go up from a pneumonia, and that just means you start mm -hmm. breathing faster and heavier, uh, and that's just because they're short of breath from the pneumonia. Blood pressure and heart rate can also get impacted by pneumonia, but less frequently we're talking this would be like a very severe pneumonia leaning towards something like sepsis. We can talk more about sepsis later, but that's mm -hmm. in long story short, sepsis is when we have an infection and the body is losing the battle. 
as we lose this battle, our heart rate goes up and our blood pressure goes down. So I guess if a pneumonia is causing sepsis, then we can see an impact on the blood pressure and the heart rate. But that's not specific for pneumonia. That's just specific for an infection in general. Yeah. And of course, let's not forget symptoms. If someone truly has a pneumonia, they're going to be complaining of cough or feeling short of breath, or maybe they had a fever a couple of days ago. Sometimes their symptoms are nonspecific, such as malaise or weakness. But without symptoms, at least something somewhat indicative of a pneumonia is probably not a pneumonia. If someone comes to the hospital complaining of elbow pain, and now the ER doctor is calling me because they want to admit him for pneumonia, I'm already doubting this diagnosis of pneumonia before the ER doctor even finishes their sentence. Last but not least, I also feel it's important to mention the narrative surrounding the particular patient in front of us. This can also give clues as a diagnosis. If I've got a young, healthy, 36-year-old marathon runner and they have no medical history, they probably won't be getting a lot of pneumonias. Without slam-dunk convincing evidence of pneumonia on an x-ray, CAT scan, blood work, vitals, I'm always going to question this 36-year-old marathon runner in front of me if someone else thinks I have a pneumonia. So much so, in fact, that... If I do see this 36-year-old healthy marathon runner and they undeniably absolutely do have a pneumonia, that makes me wonder if we're missing something else. Do they have a lung issue? Do they have HIV? Do they have some sort of immune system thing that we are now unmasking with the diagnosis of pneumonia? I remember in residency seeing a guy in his 20s who had to be admitted for a bad pneumonia. And sure enough, he was a heavy, heavy drinker and he had vomited and swallowed some of that vomit down the wrong, the wrong way. And that's what gave him his pneumonia. Yeah. And so, yeah, you're exactly right. The point I'm trying to make is that it's not just about x-rays and blood work too. the kind of person in front of us that in is itself a clue. Conversely, a patient who's 72 years old and they're on chemotherapy for lung cancer and they live in a rundown mold infested apartment and they spend all last weekend cleaning their septic tank. I mean, that sounds like a pneumonia until proven otherwise. I'm pretty apt to diagnose them with an ammonia given any minor indiscretion on their workup. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So from what you're saying, it sounds like we basically take a look at numerous factors, not just the x-ray like you see on TV. It's looking at the symptoms the patient has, who the patient is themselves, and then what their vital signs and labs show us. Is that a pretty good? Yeah, it's a great question. I guess the way I see it, there are two things that make someone sick enough to be in a hospital from a pneumonia. To me, the big one personally, now I know every doctor's got their own way, but to me, the one major guideline is their oxygen level, the presence or absence of that hypoxia I told you about. If they're doing okay on, quote, room air, room air being the medical term for no supplemental oxygen therapy is required, I tend to favor in general as a rule of thumb, and of course there are exceptions, oral antibiotics and supportive care are good enough, and oral antibiotics and supportive care can be done at home. However, if their oxygen level falls down below 89%, or if we have to put them on a cannula, or if we have to put them on a non-rebreather mask, or something like that, they definitely need to stay in the hospital. Even in the absence of true hypoxia, however, if they're spiking high fevers and their white blood cells get high, that may make me want to keep them inpatient just for a little bit, just to monitor them to make sure they don't head towards that sepsis thing I talked about. Even if they're saturating 100% on room air and they're not hypoxic at all, just, just to monitor their cultures and make sure they're not septic for a day or two is pretty reasonable. I think this is also where you look and see how that patient looks in front of you. Right. If it's an otherwise young, healthy person, they probably will do okay at home. Right. Um, whereas if it's an older person with lots of other medical problems, you have a lot more potential for things to go wrong. Yeah. In summary, if I've got a patient in front of me with an ammonia, 
but they're on room there and I'm not concerned of this sepsis looming, I'm generally going to say they're ready to go home. Mm-hmm. Even if they're still in the ER, even if they haven't even been admitted yet, just give them some antibiotics and some oral antibiotics and some supportive care. And that's probably good enough. So, I mean, Dave, what's your rule of thumb? What's your over under other than hypoxia and sepsis? Are there other things that you may want to keep this patient in the house a little longer or? Yeah. So I think, you know, age and kind of the, the health condition of the patient are two big factors. I mentioned kind of how younger people generally do pretty well with these, even on oral antibiotics, unless they're already hypoxic. But so I typically would, you know, favor sending home a younger person. Yeah, um, absolutely. I also would send, be more comfortable sending somebody home if they had good outpatient follow-up. So if I knew that they had a good primary care doctor that they could get in with within a couple of days, that'd be somebody that I'd be more comfortable sending home. Absolutely. Um, there are some scores that we can look at and that I know some of our ER colleagues will sometimes look at to help guess how severe someone's pneumonia is. I can't say that I always look at them. Yeah, I don't. I I looked at them when I was a med student and I kind of forgot them when I graduated, to be honest. The one that I really looked at the most, age was one of the biggest factors in it. And so that, you know, and I still think the age is pretty important. Um, You know, that's why if I'm seeing somebody who's elderly, I'm probably going to tend towards keeping that person in the hospital. And, you know, sometimes it also just depends on what the patient wants. If the patient's really scared and doesn't want to go home, I'm probably not going to force it. But, you know, on the other hand, if they're feisty and say, I'll be back if if things get worse, then, you know, that's somebody I'm probably going to be more comfortable with letting them go home. You kind of mentioned sometimes just to monitor too, just if we're worried about, honestly, I feel like COVID kind of took that niche and blew it open. COVID really changed some things here. Yeah, where where someone, they're not hypoxic, they're on room air, they're not septic, but sometimes we just keep them there anyway. And that's really it's not for hospital reasons. We're just monitoring them, but yeah. now we've got a whole COVID episode coming up. So we're going to, we're going to move on here in a minute, but like the classic COVID is someone who tests positive on Monday, they're fine for four days and then they crump on Friday. Yeah. And so that's why sometimes if I got a, like a 92 year old smoker, who's checking in the <laughs> hospital with, with COVID, even though they're on room air and they're not septic, I, I have a hard time sending that one home from the ER. Oh yeah. <laughs> so uh, again, we'll, we'll talk more about this in our COVID lecture. Uh, first of all, I think we're going to, learn more as we learn more and more about COVID and its natural course, I think we'll get better about predicting who needs to stay and who can't. Right. But I think there have been a lot of hospital systems that have developed some clever ways to keep tabs on these patients and still send them home. You know, whether it means they go home with an oxygen saturation monitor, that that could be a discussion for kind of a, a future podcast, but, Absolutely. Um, but I really do think that hospitals have come up with some clever ways mm-hmm. to keep these patients monitored. So stepping back a bit, though, for a moment, let's forget about hospitalizations and sick enough and admission criteria and all that. Let's just go back to summarize in general. How do we even make the diagnosis to begin with? In the preceding, we talked about about a dozen, let's say, ingredients to this recipe, which I'm going to call pneumonia soup. These ingredients include symptoms, imaging, blood work, vital signs, cultures, and narrative. As we start to add more and more ingredients to the soup, the more and more likely we have a pneumonia in front of us. With only one or two ingredients, this is probably not a pneumonia. With all 12 ingredients present, this absolutely is a pneumonia. The tricky part is when the patient has like five or six of the criteria for diagnosis because they had fevers in their shorter breath and they are an elder patient who may be on chemotherapy, but then the chest x-ray is clear and their white blood cells are normal and they're on room air. 
as I'm the doctor sitting here trying to decide whether or not this guy has a pneumonia and whether or not to give him antibiotics, I mean, it's tricky. And sometimes there, the, the correct answer, there is no correct answer. So if diagnosing a pneumonia is tricky, it must logically follow then that at sometimes somebody messes up the diagnosis. How often, how often do you think they get it wrong? I'd say at least 50% of the times that I see another doctor has diagnosed a patient with a pneumonia, I at least question the diagnosis. If not, disagree entirely. The slam dunk cases in either direction are actually, I think, kind of rare. Mm -hmm. I've already included an example above where someone checks into the ER for elbow pain and then the ER doctor is calling me to admit them for a pneumonia. I commonly, frustratingly, have to explain to the ER doctor that just because the radiologist thinks he saw a pneumonia on the x-ray of the arm, that does not mean this patient has a pneumonia, let alone he get admitted to the hospital for the pneumonia. Oh, yeah. Sometimes I almost wonder if they're just looking for a reason yep. to admit the patient. Absolutely. And pneumonia is just a, a convenient reason. But honestly, as much as I like to make fun of ER doctors, even we hospitalists are not without blame here at times. I mean, I've missed it. I'm sure I have mm -hmm. missed it as many, many times as I've gotten it right. Very frequently, I'll show up on a Tuesday to start my work week, and I'll see that the hospitalist prior to me was treating a patient for several things. And Number three on this list was a, quote, incidentally found pneumonia. You know, I question that. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes I, I question that. What usually what happened in this kind of situation is, let's say the patient's in the hospital getting treated for heart failure, and the cardiologist is giving Lasix and checking x-rays, and one of these x-rays suggested some nonspecific haziness in one of the lower lobes, and lo and behold, antibiotics got started, and we're calling it a pneumonia. It happens a lot, but... This is not here. I'm not sitting here in this episode trying to show you guys how smart I am because I'm sure it goes the other way too. I am sure mm -hmm. that there have been times that I have been seeing a patient and I am just convinced that these guys have a pneumonia and I'm giving them antibiotics. And then Dave picks up the patient on Tuesday and says, what the hell is Tyler doing? There's no freaking <laughs> pneumonia here. And Dave comes in to stop my antibiotics. The point I'm trying to, to make is it's, it's not a straightforward diagnosis. It isn't. And patients will change how they appear. So... You may see them on day one, and it may look really convincing, like they've got pneumonia. That's true. And then two days later, after they've gotten antibiotics, you know, or as as we get new information, a, an alternate diagnosis looks more likely. Absolutely. So. And adding to the frustration is that for whatever reason, you're you're going to think I'm crazy, but patients seem to like almost love getting this diagnosis, and and I don't know how to count this, but like frequently when I'll come up on on Tuesday and I'll tell the patients, hey guys, you know, I know that. Dr. So-and-so from last week said you had a pneumonia and he's giving the antibiotics. I don't know. I think the antibiotics are causing more harm than good. They go, what are you talking about? And, <laughs> and they don't want to hear it. They, they, and I realize I, I got to be careful in how I say this because I, I do think fear could be driving that. I mean, mm -hmm. pneumonia can be a scary thing. I, I don't want them to be afraid and I don't want them to think I'm mistreating them. But I mean, it's, it is curious to me how often people get upset or, or mad. They get mad at me when I tell them they don't have a pneumonia. It's just a kind of a strange thing here. Another pet peeve, this is, we're closing the episode here. My final thoughts. Another pet peeve of mine is I often see a patient tell me they have a history of quote, recurrent pneumonias. Or for example, a patient's family member might tell me that mom has had quote, seven pneumonias this year. Yeah, it's possible that this patient has some issue with recurrent aspiration, or they have a tracheotomy, or they've got some structural problem with their lungs or mm -hmm. issues with their immune system. But these issues are typically obvious. And mm -hmm. if I don't see these obvious issues in the patient's chart or history, then I'm going to doubt that they're really having these recurrent pneumonias or they're having seven pneumonias a year. I think what happens when I see that frequently is we'll, we'll just have a patient who's 
lungs just by virtue of how they look just look hazy on an yeah. x-ray and so every time this patient checks into a clinic and someone orders an x-ray some radiologist who's sitting in a clinic a hundred miles away sees this x-ray they know nothing about the patient but they say oh those lungs look kind of hazy i bet they got a pneumonia it could then, be a pneumonia in the right lower lobe. right it could yeah. be something and then the doctor who ordered it just feels like giving them some antibiotics yeah. and, and now this poor patient and their poor family think that mom is getting seven pneumonias a year and it Honestly, it, it drives me crazy. And I, when I've tried to explain to patients and their families that you probably don't have seven pneumonias a year yet again, they, they don't want to hear yeah. it, but. Well, and, and honestly, that could be something else that's obscured that, you right. Know, that could be a, a hazy lung tumor that. And this goes back to that marathon you know, runner discussion too. Yeah. And, and at times it warrants further workup. It does. But, but I mean, so, if the CAT scan's normal, then I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's somebody where I think I could do a CAT scan and, right. you know, if the CAT scan shows, an infiltrate in that spot. Honestly, a CAT scan is going to show it pretty well. So, so that's all I have for pneumonia's day. Was there anything you wanted to add here? Oh, I do. I did have a few thoughts. So, you know, you mentioned a lot of times about how radiologists will call a pneumonia. How often do you feel comfortable sort of reversing that decision when, you know, where a radiologist has said, looks like a pneumonia on the right lower lobe and you pull up the x-ray and you're not a radiologist, but you really disagree with, with their reading. Yeah, there's two ways I approach that. One is I'll look at the x-ray myself. And mm -hmm. even though I'm not a radiologist, I feel like I can diagnose the presence or absence of, an, of a pneumonia mm -hmm. on an x-ray. Radiologists are better at than me at tumors and things like sarcoidosis and all these mm -hmm. random weird diseases. But for a pneumonia, I feel like I do a, a B-plus quality job of looking at an x-ray just like the radiologist can. So for one, I will look at the image myself and mm -hmm. come up with an agreement or a disagreement. And for two... If the radiologist is calling pneumonia and the patient has no fever, no symptoms, mm -hmm. white blood cells normal, they're on room air, and and this is quite frankly not a pneumonia, I'll simply be happy to document in my note that x-ray results noted. However, the radiologist did not meet this patient. The radiologist is not looking at the patient's blood work. I do not think this is a pneumonia, and I'm mm -hmm. not giving antibiotics. I will yeah. include I'm keeping it in mind in case the patient deteriorates over the next day or two. But if the patient does fine without antibiotics, then this is simply not a pneumonia and the radiologist yeah. missed it. I, I feel the same way where I'll take a look at an x-ray radiologist may have called a pneumonia, but I agree with you. The radiologist isn't there in front of the patient. They're not getting to examine them. They're not seeing how they look. And I think we sort of get the final say in that. I think, like you said, is I think as long as you acknowledge that it's a possibility, but that you've sort of ruled it out or excluded it based on kind of how the patient looks, yep. I don't think you're, you're compelled to continue antibiotics or start antibiotics. I know some of our colleagues don't always feel that way. And, and every doctor is allowed to practice how yeah. they want to do it. But some, some people will feel a little bit risky going against what a, what a radiologist said. Yeah. And so they'll treat empirically, empirically meaning we're treating, even though we don't think that this, that's what this is, or even though we don't know that that's what this is. Right. All right. So I think that's it. Thanks for listening to us talk about pneumonias. If you have any questions or you'd like to get involved or anything you want to talk about, please send us an email at sickenoughpodcast at gmail.com. That's S-I-C-K-E-N-O-U-G-H-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. I'd like to thank Michael Cobrin and Pixabay.com for our intro music. And I'd also like to thank our sound engineer, Alex. I'd like to thank Swede Custom Studios and Two Birds Artwork for providing us with the artwork for our thumbnail on the website. And I'd like to thank all our listeners for putting up with this.